All right, check, check. All right, everyone, quiet down, quiet down. Welcome to the Royale. Uh, we are, I guess this is the official Royale Political Wire in conjunction, of course, with Next STL. I'm sure you guys all listen to the podcast and subscribe, right? Uh, my name is Steve. I'm the owner of the Royale here. We've been had a long tradition of doing this here, and this is not actually the first. I'm not the first owner of done that. So Michael will expound upon that. There's a long tradition of uh, ward politics in this bar. Um, also, I am the sergeant in arms, so I will bounce you if necessary. All right, I have a background that can do that. Strong arms. I don't know, but uh, so tonight is the eighth ward uh, uh, debate. And I will let it over to the hosts here, of course, uh, Maureen Hamlin and Michael Allen. Hi, I'm Maureen Hamlin. I am a local woman. um, That's myself. Michael, before this, someone asked, is Michael going to do one of those things where he, like, gives us a little historical lecture? And I said, oh... He brought a book. So Michael is going to give us a little history of how things could really go down. All right. Well, good evening. It's good to be here. Um, can, be, well, okay. So I am a historian. I, I teach at the Sam Fox School at Washington University, and they are completely responsible for my views and opinions expressed tonight. Uh, <laughs> can I have a show of hands? Like, who supports Paul Failer? Who supports Andy Rice? Who supports nobody and is here to decide who to support? Awesome. Well, we'll come back to that question at the very end of the night. But I did want to share briefly before Maureen asks the first scintillating, searing, provocative question. Um, I wanted to share something out of this book, Mr. Mayor. Has anybody read this book? It's the autobiography of Alfonso J. Cervantes two-term mayor of St. Louis, who served between 1965 and 1973 before he was defeated in his bid for a third term. If you ask me, that's how we should treat politicians going for third terms. But uh, no offense to either of you, but uh, the, this is a third chapter. is called Cuspidors and Flowers, the Amateur and the Brawling Alderman. Have you... I think the Sandals American used the phrase Shaw Brawl to describe this race, but I think... What was happening when Cervantes first entered politics was a lot more extreme and bare-knuckled. So we, we really don't know what it's like to have a real brawl. He uh, announced his bid for alderman at Columbo's Tavern. So the opening night of my campaign when I addressed the ward workers at Columbo's Tavern on King's Highway was notable for me because the Democratic candidate for Mayor Joe Doris came by and shook my hand. But drinking beer with the hard-working precincts kept captains afterwards, I sized up the ethnic makeup of my supporters and their ladies who were sitting at a table with Carmen, his wife, etc., etc. Where's Columbo's Tavern? Anyone know? We are in Columbo's Tavern. The birthplace, not only of successful automatic campaigns, but future mayors. And for now, supporters and ladies are actually just supporters. So, thanks for that. Now, one other thing about Cervantes, though. When he ran for alderman, the Republicans held the majority. Can you believe that? Um, Hi, Jesse Irwin, if you're out there. But um, the Democrats formed a majority. They won. They swept in 1949. And this is where it gets bare-knuckled. The Republican city register, who had to swear in each alderman, refused to swear in the newly, duly elected Democrats so the Republicans could pretend to hold on to a majority for another 
two weeks. So, if you think the shit flies at the Board of Aldermen, it really hasn't flying, it's not flying that high as it did in 1949. The Republicans tried to block duly elected aldermen from taking office. I think everything we're going to talk about tonight is way more civil than that. So, but just to test that, we'll turn to Maureen Hadlin. To, to test that. So, we're actually, um, can everyone hear us? If you can hear us, say, hell yeah. If you can hear us, say, fuck Donald Trump. Okay, great. Okay, um, so I think what we are going to do, rather than me barrel in with questions, we're going to let the candidates make some opening remarks. So the way we're going to do this for tonight is candidates get two minutes for opening and then a minute for each of our questions. We do reserve the right to come back if a candidate completely refuse to answer the question that we posed. Uh, we're going to leave it up to us to, to determine what the definition of completely refuse means. And then we're going to allow a brief closing, maybe a minute at the end. So, Wait, and can I add one more housekeeping yes. bit? Some of you have submitted questions already online, and we hope to get to as many of those as we can. If there are additional questions, you can fill out an index card here with an ink pen and send it in, and we will make every effort to ask it tonight. It can be personal, it can be political, it can be spiritual, it can be intellectual. Or you can comment, comment on, Facebook. on Facebook, and we will be watching that and monitoring that the whole night. But for now, we'll turn to the candidates. If it's a boring question, we might not ask it, to be honest. But if it's interesting, send it in. Candidates, please. Uh, let's start with um, Thaler, because that's the way the alphabet goes. You can call me Paul Maureen. Paul. That's fine. <laughs> okay, my name is Paul Thaler. And uh, first and foremost, I want to thank uh, Steve and the Royale, uh, not only for tonight, but because they have consistently uh, held these kind of events and, and made this uh, possible. I want to thank everyone who's here uh, for caring enough to come and learn more or become part of the process. So uh, I know a lot of people here, uh, but for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Paul Failer. I'm the Democratic candidate for Alderman in the 8th Ward, uh, the ferocious 8th Ward, as we were called by the St. Louis Post-Dispatch in the 1930s. Uh, my training is in geography, GIS, demography, spatial statistics. Some people hate it. Some people love it. Uh, demography is the study of large groups of people and the study of how to get them what they need. Uh, so shortly after that, I moved to Los Angeles to work for a software company. I didn't particularly enjoy Los Angeles or the software company, but that's a good place to start working in documentary film. Uh, so I made two films that uh, you probably have never heard of, but was looking for an excuse to come back uh, to the city where I grew up. So uh, has anybody here seen, uh, I made a film in 2011 called The Pruitt I Go Myth. By show of hands, has anyone seen that film? That's very encouraging. Thank you so much. So you all know a little piece of my heart, and you know that that is my love letter to this city. Uh, I am unapologetically in love with this city, with all 62 square miles, with all 80-some-odd neighborhoods, with all 28 wards, uh, and I have deep love and affection for all 317,000 people. Uh, since then, uh, realizing I couldn't top the Prudigo myth, uh, I got back into what I was trained in, data analysis. Uh, I've worked with the For the Sake of All project, uh, w which was an informer of, but also an inheritor of, uh, the Ferguson Commission report. I've done data analysis for that and for several other things. Uh, my passion is for seeing needs 
in my own 8th Ward and in the city of St. Louis and also as our region as a whole and uh, in addressing them. It's in every single effort that I've expended in doing so, I've been paid back a thousandfold by uh, uh, just great friendships and great love and appreciation, and I'm thankful for that. Thank you. to be your first eighth ward older woman. Um, I, by day, I'm an immigration attorney. I work with families um, of all different kinds searching out what their needs are and how we can best meet those within a really complicated legal system. Um, I did my undergraduate work uh, across the river in Illinois uh, doing uh, studying urban and cross-cultural ministry. I wanted to be a missionary, uh, and I realized through the course of that study that mission work is in your community. You don't have to go somewhere else to do work in the community. And um, and that led me to a number of different jobs and, and to law school. Um, and when I, I moved back to St. Louis, or I moved to St. Louis, uh, I was looking to move close to family um, for a thriving immigrant community um, and a place where I could really dig in and get involved. Um, St. Louis is, a, is an amazing place full of incredible people who are looking to move things forward and we've got so much potential and it feels like we're always right on the edge of something um, and there's room for everybody to get involved in, and help move this forward um, and that's that's what I want to do um, as an alderman as well it's uh, it's about being responsive it's about being present and accountable I um, mean it's about making policy that moves us forward as a city um, so that we're working together as a an energetic and engaged eighth ward and um, that's one of the things that's really cool about our eighth ward is We've got people that are engaged on all sorts of um, activism and nonprofit organizations and doing things in all of their collective spheres. Um, and to, to be able to lead that forward is a really exciting challenge. Um, and, you know, and, then, and then working to make policy that works for the city of St. Louis. Um, that's also a passion is that if, if something is not working for you in your neighborhood, then it's probably not working well for someone else in another neighborhood. And how do we work together to make those things um, work for everybody on the same level? So. Um, Thank you so much for having me tonight. So question number one. Um, when reviewing some of the discussion from the Monday Night Forum, a forum in which a technique often used in the Royale podcast, the lightning round was also used, I will note. Um, both of you spoke about the planned ward, ward reduction, and both of you kind of voiced some concerns you had about how there wasn't a plan in place, I mean, and kind of sounded a little negative, one could say, about the idea of undertaking a ward reduction. Now, as an alderman, whichever one of you is elected is going to be, in fact, the actual person tasked, or one of the people tasked, with planning out a ward reduction. So it's, you will no longer be just critical of the process, you will be engaged in the process. So how, how do you plan to do that? Are you going to be engaged in the process of planning the ward reduction? Are you going to be calling for more elections? What What is your plan for that? Um, start with Annie. Okay. Um, thanks. Uh, so one of the things that I said on Monday um, is that 74% of the 8th Ward voted in favor of ward reduction, and that's really important to, to understand as we go forward in this process. Um, I... I'm, I'm really interested in sitting on the legislative committee. I, mean, I know that's up to President Reed to decide on that, but um, to be a part of that committee to actually 
pull some of that responsibility for drawing those lines out of that committee. Um, I don't think that aldermen should be drawing their own lines. It's something that we criticize political parties all over the country for doing is is drawing their own lines to best suit them. And I think that's best left to a, a nonpartisan or a citizen commission, a judicial commission, um, to make that happen. So I know that there have been there have been some discussions. There's a bill that it looks like it was introduced last year by Alderman Cohen that's been sitting in the legislative committee, um, not moving anywhere, I don't think, but talking about putting together a citizen commission to see how this goes forward. So if it is not back up on the ballot again, then yes, we've got to we've got to do this and we have to keep moving forward and pushing for actual strategies in place as if it is going as if reduction is going to happen. If it comes back on up on the ballot, I support our right to vote on that again as well. Huh? <coughs> Uh, so just for clarification, we will not, uh, any alder won't be, uh, won't have an individual say on uh, ward reduction, but we'll have uh, something to say on redistricting. Traditionally, that's been handled by uh, seniority. Whoever you elect will have no seniority and will have no say on that. I do, so it's, in, in that certain way, it is moot. In another way, uh, I also work in GIS and in spatial statistics, and I have very strong opinions on how we might draw those lines. There are plans in place, if we could implement them through a judicial commission or through some uh, other mechanism, that could reasonably agnostically draw these lines and uh, just piss everyone off by being mean equally to all of them. We could do that if we wanted to. Uh, and we should do that at the state level. Uh, there are many states, Arizona, California, spring to mind, that have done this agnostic or quasi-agnostic uh, uh, method of, of, of redrawing the lines. The party in power and in uh, St. Louis, which party is in power? The Democratic Party uh, devours each other uh, because we don't have a Republican enemy uh, to face in in the supermajority that we have in Jeff City, the Republicans absolutely draw the lines in terrible, terrible ways that do a disservice to all of our constituents and us. To be fair, when we had the majority, we did the same thing. So this is not a cut and dried kind of thing. But when we reduce, and and it will probably be the case, as Annie mentioned, uh, it went 74% uh, percent in our ward. It's very popular. It might be on the on the ballot again. But it is most likely that we will reduce to 14 wards. That will be a bloodbath. And if the brawl in the 8th is uh, a disappointment to you, and I apologize for that, if it's a disappointment to you, you will have a brawl in 28 war or in 14 wards, whatever it is. That will absolutely happen. Uh, there must be some kind of outside commission that can draw these lines agnostically, or else you know our city might just implode with the sheer amount of drama that goes on. So that, that's what we have to have happen. All right. Well, <clears throat> I think one of the traditions of aldermanic debates at the Royale started the frequent recurrence of the cycle. So we've had several special elections in the 15th, finally leading to Megan Green, who I think is in the House, getting the, getting the seat. We had an eighth war debate here not less than three years ago. So I want to ask each of you, since that the eighth ward race was contested very in very recent history, did either of you take a side in that race? Which side? And what was your, your role or participation working for the candidate of your choice? Um, I think it's time to start with Paul. Yes. Cool. Uh, so in that race, and that was between uh, Alderman Conway, uh, who retired, or not retired, sorry, moved on to another position uh, four months ago, uh, and Kevin McKinney. 
uh, I actually, and Michael uh, can back me up on this, had uh, aspirations to be in, in that race and went and talked to, actually, Ogilvy as well. He's here. Uh, I had all, all sorts of uh, people that I was trying to talk to about how this would be a, uh, uh, how I could move forward. Uh, didn't have a love match with Kevin McKinney. That was not the case that, uh, that he and I saw eye on some things. And uh, Conway, uh, I was the recent safety committee chair, and he took me on a ride through the, uh, the ward. And the, the uh, purpose was definitely to dissuade me from running for Alderman. He, he pointed on every block to six and seven houses, and he said, well, you know, the, uh, the Joneses used to live there, and then the Jacksons bought it in 1993. The subtext clearly was, do you know how to do this job? And I looked into my own soul and I said, you know, I might know one person on every block of half of my neighborhood, not the 15 people on every block of every neighborhood in the ward. And so, I mean, it did a, a pretty fair job of terrifying me about my ability to do that job. So for the last three years, I uh, took that message to heart. I, I uh, needed to know more people. In order to know what's going on in your ward, you have to have people that are reporting. There are some people that will never tell you anything and don't know to go to their altman for anything. So you have to know the one person on every block who knows everyone's business. And then you've got to know three of them so that they can report to you what's really happening on that block so you can address those concerns. I was not ready back then. Oh, so I worked as his campaign manager as the direct answer for a very uh, uh, paltry sum, I will also mention, but it was not, uh, I also didn't do all that much. I probably earned every penny I got. But in the process of doing that, it taught me that I needed to know more people. I needed to know them more intimately. I needed to be more responsive to people and uh, to know somebody every block. So that, that was my role in that election. And um, I supported Kevin McKinney, um, and it was, you know, it was, it was something, it was a, a contest between, um, you know, two people who were, I mean, obviously very passionate about what was going on. Um, and I, uh, I just identified more with McKinney's policies that he um, was, was advocating for, um, kind of his, his vision for where to go. Um, and, you know, and that was... Yeah, I've worked, I, I didn't do I didn't do any active work on his campaign, um, but did support him when we came through um, uh, these forums and things like that. But uh, and voted for him at the polls. Okay, next question: Have you ever been arrested, detained, questioned, or in any other way interacted with the police as a criminal defendant rather than a educated politician? And if you have not ever acted with the police in that way, how do you plan to build empathy and perspective for members of your ward that may do so? So, Annie, it's you. That sounds like a question off an immigration form. And I, <laughs> so um, it's actually the exact order of those. Um, I, I'm not... Okay, so besides getting pulled over for speeding and 16 out in the country, um, they're, you know, the only other interactions that I've had... Um, sort of in a defensive state uh, will have been so protesting I'm um, so out uh, when the police are, are out on the streets and we're out on the streets and working to um, ensure you know my, my role kind of this latest time around was jail support um, waiting outside the jail until five in the morning to make sure that people are getting out um, and making sure people that had health complications were getting listened to that kind of thing um, and then um, and just you know, keeping an eye on things and um, where where we were going, and that we our people were safe as we were as we were walking. Um, 
And and I think, so, you know, I haven't ever had any major, you know, issues with the police uh, as myself to defend myself. Um, but I, it's something that we, that we at the firm do all the time. We, I do, um, we do civil rights litigation. We um, have represented protesters from Ferguson on forward. And understanding, you know, there's a, there's a relationship there that has to be built um, with law enforcement as part of a community. Um, but also understanding that people can't be targeted, people can't be um, harassed, understanding the national landscape of how this works and our very, um, very divided local landscape of the racial biases, racial interactions with the police. Um, and, you know, we have we have tons of reports on that. So um, building empathy, I try to listen as much as possible uh, when people are telling their stories. Um, and that's something we do with our clients all the time. So I feel like I'm, I have a pretty good ability to put myself um, not necessarily in their shoes, but in an empathetic way to be able to interact. So. Could you repeat the question? Um, have you ever been arrested, detained, questioned, or in any way interacted with the police in a defensive stance? And if not, how would you build empathy with those in your ward who may? So this one time, <laughs> uh, uh, at, I, I've had minimal uh, interaction with uh, police, and I'm also, I'll be the first to tell you, uh, shrouded by white male privilege. So my outcomes should not be taken as uh, though they... Uh, would have been the same had they been different. But one time I did jump the fence at the notatorium and was arrested for trespassing because I swam at night. <coughs> if that, you know, dissuades... Also another time, probably I was a kid and I remember spending a night in jail because we were throwing fireworks out of our car. These are things that uh, were regrettable as uh, youthful indiscretion that harmed no one and caused no damage but uh my interaction with the police and those two uh things were you know stern but probably uh i was given a more charitable uh uh way to go with things because of uh, you know certain privilege I, I was well at the first one i was at uh, a college and as a white man at college i'm sure that, that insulated me from some of the negative consequences i want to be very upfront with that but no uh, no felonious things no things that uh would shock or appall you unless you hate swimming at night in a pool, so. All right, I'm gonna follow up. Um, obviously, uh, the Eighth Ward and the Shaw neighborhood in particular is familiar with the events in 2014 when Jason Flannery, officer in the San Luis Police Department who's since been disciplined for other offenses outside of this incident, um, shot and killed Von Derrick Myers. Um, several questions have come in uh, from, from residents in the Eighth Ward on what the standard of review and conduct should be for private security. I guess Florida Place is probably the only private security district in the in the ward, but how the ward – is there another one? Southwest Garden. Southwest Garden. So how these – then then more generally, then how the public should be able to have review of the conduct of officers working, both police officers and private staff for these – security organizations, what should be the role of the board's citizens in that review, and how should discipline be handled? A lot of people obviously feel like what happened with Von Derrick Myers was not resolved in a very beneficial way for the community. Paul. Also, the uh, Flora Place CID, a, uh, an officer uh, who was a sworn officer of the law uh, that was working uh, over the CID, uh, pursued uh, Von Derrick Myers from Flora to uh, the gangway uh, between uh, at Shaw and Clem, 
and there was an interaction that resulted in a young man's uh, uh, being shot and killed. Uh, the specific question about the role of review that individual that ward residents could have uh, over the CID is, I think, fairly minimal. But I also would entertain any kind of uh, ideas that one might have to have that. Uh, one important thing that we have to keep in mind with, especially, I, I anticipate that there might be a question about the memorial. Uh, anticipating that, and I'll go into that more later if you'd like is that whatever other reaction that uh, the people in the Shaw neighborhood of the 8th Ward had to that event, people bound together and realized whatever they would disagree upon, uh, that, a, that, a, that a family was grieving and a grieving family is a grieving family. And even people that uh, were on all sides of that made sure that you know there were buckets of stew and soup and everything cooked for people. The, the, it's not the case that we can plunge ahead in these things in a heartless way or in a doctrinaire way or in a very rigid way because we all were aware that we were dealing with a grieving family. Uh, as far as, uh, you know, remedy uh, that can come from the residents, uh, you know, the remedy should come from circuit attorney and from internal affairs. That's, that's the way that we should uh, pursue those things. And whether that was done or not, I'm not privy to. But... A citizen's remedy would be, I suppose, to, in the extreme, dissolve the CID. But I don't hear from my residents any clamoring calls to do so. Annie. So uh, I believe there's still a, a wrongful death lawsuit um, pending against the floor place CID. Um, and so they're, they're dealing with the ramification, ramifications of a, um, of a private security officer uh, who was involved in a killing uh, while on their duty. So um, it'll be interesting to see how that goes. I know it's been pending for a long time. Um, it is, it's, it's a complicated process because these are generally officers who are, they are police officers who are currently working as police officers but then are working a secondary job um, on a private security. And, and there's different standards of review for a company versus um, the police department. But if the person is ask, acting in their official capacity as a police officer, then they should be subject to the same type of review, which, which Officer Flannery was. He, it went through the circuit attorney's office, um, and Jennifer Joyce declined to press charges. Um, but we also didn't have an active COB at the time. We didn't have a civilian oversight board. Um, we still don't have a civilian oversight board with subpoena power. Um, and I would be interested in, in seeing how far that goes into their actions just as private security, right? So if, um, because this incident happened off of Flora Place, it was technically outside of his patrol area as private security, but as a St. Louis police officer, there are roles they play even when they're off duty, and they have responsibilities even when they're off duty. They have um, the right to pursue things that, that they see in certain circumstances. And I have some questions about that initial stop. Um, when, um, when Officer Flannery first encountered Von Derrick Myers that night, um, and then that kind of spins my perspective on, on what happened um, at that corner. But um, so there's there's an official capacity question, and then there's the private security, and and I think it's when it's private, it's up to the CID to um, decide whether or not they want to continue with that. But I think there should be oversights into private security in general, right? Um, where especially when you have 
officers who are connected to a police department at the moment, how then can we review their actions? Um, because if they're acting in an official capacity, then we should be able to review them in an official capacity. Um, and that comes back to Civilian Oversight Board. Can I just want to remind the room that you can write down questions for the candidates by coming up and getting an index card from the man whose hand is up right now. Uh, and then I want to ask a brief follow-up, yes or no answer, real short from each of you. Do each of you support the Civilian Oversight Board getting subpoena power? Yes. Uh, yes, with reservations that, that ironically intensify its subpoena power. Uh, yes, once we've worked out problems uh, that might uh, actually impede uh, the ability to prosecute uh, police or, or anyone. It, there needs, it needs to be tightened up, but notionally, yes, 100%. Okay, I want to shift gears a little bit to talk about the hottest topic in St. Louis outside of concrete balls, and that is tax abatement. Side note, we are all a depressingly nerdy group of citizens here in the city. Okay, so tax abatement. Here's a question that was submitted. Would you cons commit, commit, and we will hold you accountable by Steve refusing to serve you drinks at the Royale in the future if you violate this, would you commit to not sponsoring tax abatements for single-family residents with projected sales prices over 200% of the city, city's median home value? Would you commit to doing that? And if you would not commit to doing that, is there something, some tax abatement commitment you can make here tonight? Again, enforceable by Stephen Fitzpatrick Smith. <laughs> Uh, I think Paul's first. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, I get, do you want me to read it one more time? Yes, please. Yeah. please. Not. Yeah. Commit to not sponsoring tax abatements for single-family residences if the projected sales price of that single-family residence is above two hundred percent of the city's median home value. Gotcha. Uh, Would total, you commit to that? total parcel or improved parcel? I mean, for the median, it's important. I'm not trying to be. The questioner is <laughs> not here tonight, so okay. answer how you will. So I might have two different answers. Well, so uh, TIF and tax abatement needs. Uh, this is the short answer. Sorry, am I am I not short you, answering? You gotta, you, they took our lightning round thing, so you gotta you gotta just say well, you just get a minute. Sure, sure. Well, so uh, you know, if that could be done unilaterally, then I would. But here's the thing: I would be doing a disservice to the eighth ward if I couldn't have uh, some kind of cooperation from uh, the tenth, from the seventh, from the sixth, uh, from the fifteenth. The fact is, if, if one was to do that, and we have this, what I described in the podcast, as a perverse incentive. If Ward X, Y, and Z exist, and Ward X and Y are thriving and built out and are uh, have, a, have a, a rising uh, housing market, and Ward Z has none of these things, X and Y have no... Uh, have no business telling Z that we should do away with TIF and tax abatement. So, and that's been true for a long time. So, uh, traditionally, what we do is X and Y says, "Well, you know, Z has a point. Let's just keep doing what we're doing." But then X and Y have a perverse incentive to poach one another. Uh, so, any alder or alder candidate who would commit to such a thing is committing to having disparate development. As far as whether that should happen, as stated by the questioner. Absolutely. There has not been a comprehensive planning document in this city in how long, Michael? Probably 20 years or more? 1947. Oh, wow. Well. So, a little bit more than 20. 
but we've not had that comprehensive uh, planning document that's going to uh, guide our use of Chapter 99 and 353. Uh, now, 99 is not employed in uh, uh, in the Shaw neighborhood and, and is not in danger of being employed with that. But, I mean, you ask a good question. The right answer, I realize for the people in this room, the right answer is yes, I will commit to that. But anyone who says yes, I will commit to that is committing to giving it's a zero-sum game at the end of the day unless everyone else commits to that why would i disadvantage my neighbors by saying i am the person this young plucky eighth ward alderman that that is going to take on the world is going to do that they're not doing you a service if they do that so i mean the answer is no but the answer is yes that we should commit to that but i'm going to be the person i'm going to be the little dutch boy with his finger in the dam you know it's this you look kind of dutch to be uh, honest well, with you appreciate it <laughs> How much is 200%? 200% of regional median? We're, we're talking in abstracts, but if we had real numbers, it might. Yeah, I apologize that I didn't bring the median home values for every home in the city. Is, the median home value is 127000 127000 So now, yeah. now we're at the quarter million. All right, Annie. It's very worthy. Oh, sorry. So um, <laughs> I, I think it's a... We need to have a plan. We need to have a plan that everyone across the city is committing to when we're we're making these judgments on where um, incentives are used, right? And we in the Eighth Ward, we've used a lot of incentives. We've used a lot of tax abatements, um, but it also it also matters where that property is coming in, right? Is this is it a, a cornerstone property that is going to then move an area forward is it is it truly blighted in a way that um is not just meets the legal definition when we assign it that um but is actually blighted and does actually deserve that sort of um increase um i my my commitment is to there's no blanket tax abatements um that's that is an an easy commitment to make and say i want people to come and make their case and i want um I want that for everyone at the Board of Aldermen. Until we have a plan that says, this is how we're going to use these citywide, then everyone needs to come and say, this is why I, they actually need this. Not, I leveled a, I leveled a home, there's an empty plot, we're going to assess it at a, an empty plot level, and then we're going to abate it and build a $500,000 home there, right? Like, you can't... We're past the point of letting those things slide past us just because it doesn't happen in our wards. And so I think asking hard questions and saying, you know, can you prove to us that this is actually necessary, right? Because when we're looking to reform these areas, we have to prove that there's a need. Um, and that's that's the most important thing to me is proving that there's a need. And I, in the 8th Ward, we have areas that there may still be a need. Um, Shaw's probably not one of them unless um, unless there's there's significantly more going on inside that we can't see from the outside. I just want to put out in fairness, there is a drink you can order at the Royale called the Tax Abatement. It's an old-fashioned, and the house serves you a glass of water, a splash of sugar, and a lemon rind, and the bartender keeps the whiskey. So um, order one tonight, if you dare. Um, and eventually, some of that whiskey gets trickled down into the tax base, yeah. sure. if the bartender chooses. But um, none to the kids, though. That's, that's a the... bad image. Of... <laughs> anyway. Anyway, uh, another question. Um, so, looking through the Missouri Ethics Commission reports for each candidate, and I'm not trying released to... yesterday. I'm not going to fan flames, but um, on um, Annie, your report, there are contributions from Tishara Jones and Vervis Jones. Paul, on your report, there is a relationship with the Kelly Group. 
Tashara Jones ran for mayor in the last cycle. Kelly Group worked for Lida Krusen. Obviously, it was a very close and contested election, and some of the flames from that race have not died down. To what extent is this race a proxy war or any kind of reenactment of that set of relationships? Relitigation, says the lawyer, the law student here. That's my turn, right? Um, so and I'm not I think that's, trying to be glib. Sure. No, I mean, that's it. That's an interesting thing to pull from the reports. It said the contributions from Tashar and Vervis were a very small part of a, um, I think we had 100 and, 170, maybe, I'm maybe the wrong, never wrong, but diff, separate contributions from folks, um, 90, at least 90 people in the 8th Ward that have given to my campaign. Um, so... Just because just because Tashar is on there does not make make this a direct proxy war. I will say, um, when in the mayoral primary, in the Democratic primary, um, Tashar did win forty seven percent of the votes in the eighth ward, um, and there that that somewhat felt like a proxy war. That mayoral primary, um, when you had Alderman Conway supported Lida, um, and. And then the eighth ward voted 47% uh, for Tashara. There, there was a significant sort of message that felt like it was being sent there. Um, and so, you know, whether this is directly that, you know, I, that was that was a multi. There were lots more. There were a few more candidates in that race, so you can't make a direct comparison on that. Um, but there is there's something to be said for. Um, something something different. Uh, something outside. Um, a little more unexpected, a little more different avenue to get to this role. Um, so I wouldn't call it a direct proxy war. There are some comparisons, um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm grateful to have Tashara's support. I'm grateful to have Vervis's support. Um, I'm grateful for all of the support that was present on the MEC report. I would call it a proxy war, <laughs> and I think it's pretty ridiculous that uh, this far down on the chain that I'm uh, getting steamrolled by uh, people who. I have no, no beef with, no beef with at all. And I'll also point out, and this is not to put my opponent uh, on, on blast, but we handed out together a green ballot that had you endorsing Lida. We are, if anyone is unclear, who's in the 8th Ward? Will you raise your hand, please, just for whatever? Uh, who thinks they might be in the 8th Ward but are, but are not sure? Come find me after. All right. So the 8th Ward Democrats, the 8th Ward Democrats are an open ward, one of very few in the city. And the way that we uh, roll is that we exercise what, what's called democratic centralism, where we all come together and we all argue behind closed doors and uh, fists are only rarely thrown, but we come up with the person that we uh, endorse. In the case of Prop P, it can be very uh, narrow. It was 20 to 17. In the case of Lida versus Tashara, it was, uh, it was less narrow, but, but still contested. And then afterwards, we all agree that we are putting our name behind whoever it was. And admirably, I think, and it's the most democratic way. Uh, in the seventh ward, they give you tickets based on, you get three votes to 0.5 votes based on how many polls you worked or whatever. This is one person, one vote. And if you come and you have your $5 and you pay for it, uh, pay for your membership for that year, your vote counts as much as the committee person, as the alder person. And, all, and after all that fight is over, we endorse a candidate. So... And in that privacy, that voting booth, you can do whatever you want. But my opponent passed out Lida Lit with her name on it. That, that's just simply the case. Now, what she voted on that booth, that's fine. But proxy war, back to that. Yeah, so uh, I have been, I think, kind of mistreated by some uh, news outlets. I think that they've given kind of a slanted picture. And reporting on uh, 
arguments between can, between supporters on Facebook is not going to win any Pulitzer Prizes. I'm very sure of it. Uh, I I I, it, we, I don't know why how I got on the bad side, but this you know proxy war is not inaccurate. I'm not going to say that you're wrong. A uh, short follow-up: What are the dues to the Eighth Ward Democrats? That we just raise them to ten dollars a year. Um, All right. So, and it, do I can I respond yeah. on that? So, yes. Yeah, so, one of the rules with the Eighth Ward uh, Independent Democrat organization was once a Democrat was endorsed by the organization, then we supported that. Um, and so, I was doing my due diligence uh, to do that. And so, yes, my name was on a ballot that had uh, that had Lida's uh, as our endorsed candidate in that race. Um, and so, that's that's. Not something that I'm trying to hide from by any means, because that was the role in which I was in. Um, and uh, yeah, I just I think that's I'm not and, hiding. And, from and this. maybe so, it's obvious, but is your name on a ballot endorsing Paul for alderman right now? I was going to no, follow up not. on that. No, okay. it is not. Okay. So I have a quick follow up to that, just because I want to make sure that we kind of cover this. So I think obviously some of us on Facebook, some of us are not, some of us have our brother texting us things. He says on Facebook, maybe that's just me. <laughs> Michael, I don't know if you're here. So, I, you know, I think, um, obviously, I think contributions to both of you have become, there's been, I would say for each of you, a flashpoint about contributions. So for Annie, it was the large contribution from Dave Bogar. Bogar. And, you know, for Paul, I think today people were had a lot of questions about the Kelly Group loan, um, and so it was not alone. So, so give it. So, I would say one minute. Explain okay. your perspective on each. Go well, ahead. you saw you saw my response that I responded to pretty uh, convincingly. G- give it in case so, people uh, are at not the time, following. In Facebook. case you're not following. Yeah. Uh, well, if you're not following Facebook, then you've not heard any of this. So, there's nothing to respond to. <laughs> so it's moot. Uh, if uh, a tree falls in the woods. So uh, a man named Glenn Burley, who is a I will say a crafty, uh, wizened veteran uh, who even his friends would say probably is, uh, I wouldn't say stretches the truth, I will say is uh, antagonistic. No, we, wouldn't no, we, wouldn't. we wouldn't. So, Paul, continue. You got a mouse in your pocket or who are you, who are you speaking for? I think even his friends would say that. Uh, uh, intimated that because on my MEC report, I uh, marked that I owed $9,000 uh, to the Kelly Group. Uh, that somehow that was going to be forgiven and Putin was funding my uh, race and this was dark money or something like that. The the fact of the matter is when you file your MEC report, you have to report who you owe money to. Uh, That debt has been paid. It was paid very quickly after that. For the the record, the Kelly Group has uh, designed my mailers and mailed them to people and, and suggested me putting the two little yellow stripes on my lawn sign. That's the extent of my, uh, there are people in my employ. They mail things to you so that you can, you know, take them from your front door and throw them away in your trash can, having hopefully read them slightly. But the, the, the notion that that was something sinister was absolutely ridiculous. I think that Glenn was satisfied by my answer. Anyway, it, it, I'll post it to you if you want, but it was a ridiculous assertion. And, there's, and, and besides that, like you said, there was funding controversies about me. Uh, the Kelly, I think that, and then I think there, I think there is a question about the Steve Conway's contribution to you. Steve Conway gave me two thousand dollars. There's no, is there a controversy around that? Mm-hmm. All right, Annie. Sure. So, um, I, I'm really 
I'm very comfortable with the people that have donated to my campaign. Like I said, we have 90 different people in the 8th Ward that have contributed. Um, and, and the larger contribution from Dave Boger, who is a longtime 8th Ward resident, who is a dedicated citizen, um, who stands on the corner of Shaw and Clem with the Black Lives Matter sign. Um, I'm Candidates, uh, especially female candidates, have a hard time raising money. And if you look at the MEC reports of donors that have given to, say, state reps, and they give five, ten times as much to male candidates as they do to female candidates. Um, and in, this, in these elections, we have campaign finance limits. I have followed those. Everything that I've got is, um, is out, is public, um, is there for you to read. I invite you to go read that. There, there have been times that I've been given money that I've given back because I did not agree with that person's politics. I didn't, be, I didn't agree with their stances on things. Um, and that's, it's important to me to know that the money that's coming in, I, I, I'm, I'm not, it's a, it's a perspective issue that if, if, if I have a question about whether this is going to make me look like I'm tied to something or something like that, I'm, I'm comfortable giving that money back. Um, and I think that stands, that helps me when I'm talking to other donors as well to say, listen, I, I'm approaching you for money because I believe in you because I believe that you believe in me. Um, and I'm grateful to have someone who believes in me enough to give me a significant amount of money um, from someone who he's retired um, and he was gifted some money from his mother that passed. Um, this is not a real estate tycoon. This is not a developer. Um, he's a nice man who works really hard for the 8th Ward. So. All right, moving along. I'm, I'm a historian and I, I am not quite certain if St. Louis has an official city song. There doesn't seem to be any record of that. So I'm assuming there isn't one, but we can go through the past ordinances at the St. Louis Public Library in the St. Louis room on the third floor. Beautiful history room. Every ordinance ever recorded is in there. Um, I haven't read them all. Um, but Michael, why if not? we're going to pass a new St. Louis City song, what, legis what song would you try to introduce through legislation to be the new song of St. Louis? I guess we start with Paul, start with Annie. Um, it doesn't have to be Eighth Ward specific. Yeah, well, Although yeah, ballads about Henry Shaw's slaves, <laughs> slaves running away across the river, probably not. Yeah, probably. Can. Let's not. Let's not do that one. Um, <laughs> Songs about the pavilions and Tower Grove. Park. By the way, this was a real submitted question. Just in case it is. anyone this is, is real. creative, I like it. Um, so, off the not top everybody's of my head, foot is in the mud. You know, right? Um, <laughs> People are off the top dreaming. of my head. I'm just going to throw back to high school, where at my high school homecoming dance they played country grammar four times um so let's go ahead and there you go i'm with nelly on this one all right i have long advocated for country grammar to be our uh, i'm glad that we found this commonality <laughs> i really am i I'm, i love that song to death uh and it's played at every uh, family reunion I go to, and it's always the highlight of the family reunion. Uh, St. Louis Blues is probably by W.C. Handy is probably uh, something that deserves to be considered as well. Fast fact: St. Louis Blues, composed by W.C. Handy, native of Memphis, uh, our, our most famous song, arguably, uh, came from a, a, uh, somebody from Memphis, and uh, uh, their most favorite song, uh, Memphis, Tennessee, composed by Chuck Berry somebody from our city. Mm. And we have a W.C. Handy Park. We need to celebrate that. But clearly, and I'm glad to build consensus, country grammar is the answer to that question, for sure. Okay, so... Some, somehow I think once upon a time Cervantes would have said Bob Cuban and the Inman, the cheater, so... You're going to have to send me that, Michael. I'm not, not, not familiar. Nobody in this room is old enough. Unlike Michael, who is 
ancient and timeless. Okay, um, so when, Eighth Ward candidates, when is the last time you rode either the Metro bus or the Metro link personally? And uh, what do you think our city needs to do to improve transportation policy? Did somebody shout out 30 bus? Awesome. I, I, I haven't ridden the 30 bus in two weeks, but I rode the 80 bus last week to go to, to Metro. Uh, I, uh, for nine years, had no uh, car and depended primarily first just on bus transit. I didn't use the Metro that much. Bus transit and uh, pedestrian transit. That was the way I got around but for about three years exclusively. And then for the next six years, I, did, I discovered... Uh, an invention from the 19th century it was called a bicycle, and that really uh, amplified the, uh, my, my reach in the city. Uh, it took me three years uh, in some undiagnosed level of autism, but I decided that I was going to ride every street in the city, uh, every block of every street. There's 1,800 miles of streets in this city. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, and yeah, and people are like, oh, you rode up there? It's like, yeah, no, it was fun. We had a great time. If you ever uh, feel like this city is too small, if you ever feel like maybe uh, maybe I do want to move to Chicago, give yourself three years and commit to riding down every street in the city. It will uh, put a smile on your face every day. You will meet people that you would not have met earlier. Uh, but the question is about transit. Transit infrastructure is very, very important. North-South Metro is uh, clearly a priority. But people have to know that when we budget something like $20 million, that's for a study, for something that's going to be uh, completed in 2038. I mean, you have to put down deep roots here if you want to get the payoff for this North-South Metro link. It's going to cost $1 billion. It's about $127 million for, uh, for light rail per, per linear mile. And uh, if we're going to make something that's going to be useful and make it as ambitious as it should be so it could serve as many people as it should be, it's going to require federal funding. This is going to be, that would be 130% of our city's budget for a year. We can't afford it on our own. We have to get Trump out. We have to get somebody else in who cares about infrastructure, and then we can have that conversation. But it's absolutely essential shoring up our transit infrastructure. It's something I'm passionate about, something I'm committed to. Sure. I think the, the last time I took the, the bus in the metro was to the airport, um, and I, I did try, Citizens for Modern Transit does a try and ride program um, that if you're interested in that, it's a great way to you know, get to know the buses and Metrolink here. Um, and I live on the 80 bus line, and I was working close to where the 80 bus line went to, um, and I tried to do that, and then the bus was five minutes late one day, it was five minutes early another day. I'm an attorney, I've got to get to court, I've got to get to other buildings around town, um, and it just, it wasn't feasible to continue using that. It wasn't, it wasn't user-friendly enough for me to get to where I needed to go. Um, and I think, you know, the 8th Ward has the 70 bus line runs right down the middle of it. It's the highest um, traffic, or highest um, density use of any of the bus lines in the city. And we, we know that buses uh, right now, that yes, Metrolink is incredibly expensive, but our bus frequency is also expensive, but is something that is directly connects people to get to the Metrolink, um, get to the light rail, um, and working to prioritize and um, make those more efficient, more frequent. Um, I think the, the guidelines are about 12, every 12 minutes. If we could get buses on 12 minutes, um, then people can get to where they need to go. Your, your, train, your transfer times are less, all of that. And that's, um, at 12 minutes is, is 
is a goal. It is not something that it, you can snap your fingers and make because it's incredibly expensive to make buses run that frequent as well. Um, but it's something that connects people to their jobs, to their schools, to their family. It determines where people live, where development comes in. Um, and so we have to have um, by states working on a plan. We've got there was a, a group that was promoting a modal study um, that was down at City Hall a couple of weeks ago talking about things that they could do to make our streets more bike friendly, more pedestrian friendly, um, connecting sort of our, our our routes of our arteries where people are getting to and from things. And so we seem to be moving in that direction. I know it's always a little bit of a, an uncomfortable time when a new bike lane comes in and they shorten where we can drive. You take a, a lane away. You get a little bit of a road diet there, and it takes it takes some time to get used to. But those are the types of things that are moving us forward into the, in the 21st century here and the type of urban environment that I think we all want to live in. May, may I follow up briefly? And, and I'll, I'll give uh, complimentary time as well. Very briefly. Sure, yeah. yeah uh, one of the reasons that we live in the three neighborhoods that we have, one of the reasons that uh, uh, that we are so attractive to, to people that are, are commuting to anywhere else is our transit infrastructure. I mean, we have the 80, we have the 16, we have the 72, the 95. We have all of these ways to get to uh, where you want to go. Uh, we have to maintain those. We have to expand those so they can be more egalitarian uh, citywide. But we are located uh, in the 8th Ward. If you live in the 8th Ward, in one of the most transit-friendly places on earth. And if you are scared of the bus, then I w- then call me, and I will ride the bus with you. We will, uh, we will explore the whole system. It's fantastic. We do have... We still have our gaps as well. We have people who are in Tower Group East who can't get over to our ward meetings um, because the bus... The buses to get from where they are on Arsenal Street to get to St. Margaret of Scotland, where we have our meetings. I think she said it takes about 40 minutes to do that with the transfer in there. And so that's, I mean, we, we are in the middle of it, but there are ways that we need to be able to optimize that as well. Right. Speaking of transportation infrastructure, we, we have a couple comments here about the concrete balls, as Maureen so uh, memorably phrased it. Now, that's, those are in the sixth ward. But some of the traffic studies that went into deciding whether or not to use those for calming measures suggested that if other north-south routes were more accessible to the Sixth Ward, like maybe Tower Grove Avenue through the Shaw neighborhood, those measures might not have been necessary. I also think about something Vince Shamel once uh, told me, which is that he, when when Shaw put in the street closures at the east and west mm-hmm. ends, that the neighborhood was fully divided. It was not an easy decision, like people might assume. And he went to a public meeting in St. Margaret of Scotland, and it was contentious, and there seemed to be no majority. So he, it was Monday night, and Monday night football was on. So he told the priest to have them line up on one wall or the other and count them, and he was going to go watch Monday night football until the, the count was finished. And when he came back, there was like 51 people for it and 50 people against it, and they decided to close the streets. I'm exaggerating the numbers, but it was something very, very razor thin. So uh, if you're elected, like under what circumstances would you consider reversing any of these closures in the Shaw area and other parts of the 8th Ward? Um, and in what circumstances would you consider making any new modifications, not only to the street system, but I think the undersung sort of part of the system, the alleys as well, which often get closed or appropriated by private businesses. But do, do both of these belong to the public people as common infrastructure? Sure. So um, I'm going to go ahead and say that I'm on board with ingracia balls, not sleigh balls, because sometimes the ladies need to talk about the balls as well. Um, and uh, the and so when when the traffic studies happen, we ain't happens, seen it yet. Hats, mustaches, yeah, you know, googly eyes. Shout eyes. out Tiffany Milligan. Yes. Just kidding. Um, the uh, 
So when the traffic study was taking place, the 6th and the 15th were both working together on that. And I approached Alderman Conway and said, hey, why aren't we participating in this study? We, we overlap with them. We have all of these challenges. We've got roads that are cut off. We've got people complaining about not being able to get into the neighborhood, not being able to get out of the Shaw neighborhood. And the areas that we share with the 6th and the 15th um, or that we border on, it would make a whole lot more sense if we were doing this together. Um, and he said they, you know, it was incredibly expensive. And Christine has said that as well, that even just getting Compton was equal to, you know, kind of the whole of the block of Tower Grove South because just because of where the density of that and, and, you know, how the amount of cars that come through that and all of that. Um, so it would have been beneficial had we done the traffic study at the same time because we would know then for sure how these things really affect each other. Um, and right now, aldermen sort of have their own say as far as a stop sign goes in here, this turns into a one-way here. Um, and, and it again, like another need for a city plan of how do we move traffic, right? I'm not a traffic engineer. I won't pretend to be a traffic engineer. I hope that there are plenty of people who are much smarter about this than I am who I can go to and say what actually makes sense here, what makes the most fiscal sense, what gets people to where they need to go. Um, and in Shaw, one of the one of the prime areas that, that is ripe for a test of reopening is the Thurman underpass. Um, and there are there are some balls there that cannot be attributed to Christina Gracia, um, but they um, those are there. There they were put in and they were expensive to put in. But that was even another contentious just closing that one. But we we cut off an entire neighborhood, and so a lot of the growth and business and traffic people moving through that area was cut off. Um, and we I think we still we need to work at being better neighbors to open these thoroughfares so that people can get to and from. And that brings business back into, specifically into the Shaw neighborhood. Um, They are going to be long, difficult conversations um, with the neighbors who live in the areas that are now cul-de-sacs, right? That is, if you bought your home there and it's a cul-de-sac and you bought it because it's a cul-de-sac now, then those are going to be conversations we have to have and they're difficult um, to have those. Um, But it's, it's important to sort of weigh weigh those interests, right? The interests of the business owners who are there, the people who own property and, and um, their children are growing up there. Um, and, you know, how are we moving? How, what is our traffic pattern? What is the burden there that is being put on other neighborhoods because of that? So I'm open to the conversation. And- Paul. Paul. Well, in my work as a map maker and geographer, I have done traffic studies before. It's something I've done actually quite a bit of work on. Uh, the quickest way to anger every single person in your ward is to change even minorly any aspect of the traffic configuration. You will be descended on by so many people that are so angry at you. Uh, no one likes the, the The status quo is uh, what they're used to. And even if, I mean, you could improve it by 100% and they're still going to hate it. Uh, the end caps at the end, and, and Michael is exactly right, and Shamel's recollections are right, but you undersold, if not oversold. I, I was told that those in Shaw's history were the be- the highest attended with uh, uh, 1,200 people fitting into several places, and, and, the, and, and people were wow. right on the line. We, we have 1,201 in the house tonight, just for the record. Right, right. <laughs> I'm bad at crowd estimation. That's my Achilles heel. But the, uh, <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, if you change that configuration, uh, people will scream bloody murder. There's the, the cul-de-sacs at the end of Shaw are not going away. The people there love them quite a bit. We could uh, put some things through. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the, the underpass at Thurman, that could go away. Uh, let me tell you how that, uh, how that came about. Uh, there was uh, McCree Town before Botanical Heights. And there was a when we were living in uh, much more segregated neighborhoods. That was the African American neighborhood, and that was blocked off by nervous whites that lived in Shaw because they uh, didn't want people to have fast ingress and egress. Now, uh, 
this is a configuration or a change to a configuration that would be very popular with my neighbors. To open that up again would be fantastic. Now Botanical Heights doesn't want it to open up. Uh, so uh, I would work with Alderwoman Davis. I would uh, pull her constituency. I would like to see uh, uh, what they would think about that because I think that that would absolutely uh, allow both neighborhoods to thrive and that would be a good thing. Now, contrary to what people may have heard, the Eighth Ward is not entirely Shaw. There's a lot of other places where uh, things need to do. So in Southwest Garden, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am. In Southwest Garden, we're replacing one bridge soon. We have to figure out. Uh, we replaced uh, another bridge. Uh, it took only about four years to do, and it's only half done now. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so I mean, that and that speaks to the larger point that we can't just focus on uh, Shaw and Shaw's needs. But uh, th- there's some trans- There's there's a uh, Walgreens development that has. Uh, uh, it's going to cause, in my opinion, uh, terrible... Uh, it's one of the most dangerous intersections in the city, according to people that I've seen the traffic study on. They want less curb cuts. I think that their request is entirely reasonable. I want to deliver it to them. That's one of the first. That's going to be the first thing on the agenda. I'm going to make sure that, they, uh, uh, that their traffic is made safe. So, yes, uh, if you need a traffic study, I can do it for you. <laughs> Um, so it's almost Valentine's Day, and speaking of Valentine's Day, talking about some of the most loving and intimate relationships in our lives, let's talk about absentee and delinquent landlords. So, what? <laughs> you know, absence makes the heart grow fonder. There's some absentee landlords that are very near and dear to my heart, Michael Allen, and you know exactly who I'm talking about. Um. um what would you do? So this is a question submitted from the audience. What would you do to push and what would you do to deter landlords from sitting on vacant property? What would you do to, to, to dare I say, crack down on landlords who are mistreating their tenants? Um, and how would, you, how would you take action on that, not only in the 8th Ward, but in citywide? Uh, I think Annie is starting this time. No, 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 no. Paul's studying this time. Well, uh, yeah, the the study of human behavior is the study of incentive. It's the study of inducements. You have to work with these landlords. It's it's less of a problem in our three neighborhoods now than it has been. It's still a problem. Uh, But in the the 90s, we had people that uh, no one was sure what they even looked like that lived in Cleveland and lived in Pittsburgh and lived in Miami and owned 17 properties and never visited them, never kept them up. uh, nuisance property was used in some cases. Also, we have we are very very lucky, uh, not only in the eighth but also uh, in in uh, the fifteenth to have the Tower Grove Neighborhoods Community Development Corporation, uh, which acts and always has acted, which is an outgrowth of what was the Shaw Neighborhood uh, Development Corporation, which was an outgrowth of the St. Margaret's of Scotland Development Corporation, uh, which has done so much to stabilize all of our housing. Uh, Southwest Garden had a very active in. Uh, uh, CDC uh, and Tower Grove East uh, had at various times that, but the coalescing of that and leveraging our strengths and with uh, Sean, with great leadership, we've been able to disincent or to assemble the capital to buy out. As much as we would like to be able to have some kind of uh, stick to beat the delinquent landlord out of the neighborhood, you have to have a carrot sometimes. Sometimes you just can say, well, what will it take? We want to buy it. And, and they've used that inducement so effectively. Uh, I can't say that there are no delinquent landlords left in the 8th, but, uh, but that's what you have to do. Sometimes you've got to pay them to walk away from the table. Uh, citywide, it's a little bit more complicated, uh, but we have to 
make sure that a rising tide lifts all boats, that we have the opportunity to do that in other neighborhoods as well. Yeah, so I think that um, the incentive, absolutely, if, if the organization has the money to be able to buy out those properties, then that's, that's obviously the best um, bet, because then you've got the ability to renovate them. Um, Tower Grove Neighborhood CDC is keeping some some of their properties at uh, at lower income housing levels. It's still still kind of high. It's not the it's not the lowest. It's not. Um, I think it's eighty percent of median there. And it, it was a great it was a great purchase. But they had a, a massive influx of cash from a, a private bank that needed that. And so we're lucky to have those tools at our disposal. Um, one of the things that I would like to look into is a tenant's bill of rights. Um, and I think yeah. that that is that. That's a protection that we need to have for people who are in vulnerable housing situations. So um, your lease can only protect you so far. We have very landlord-friendly laws in Missouri. And to be able to work to protect people, 51% of St. Louis rents. Um, and that number is increasing, and that number is increasing nationwide as well. So to be able to put something on the books to say, an enforcement policy, say, if this person doesn't have water, or if this person, if there's mold on the walls, or you know the, the tub isn't caulked and there's water leaking into this and the the amount of um, horrible situations that St. Louisans are living in because we don't have any protections for them um, are significant and we have very few attorneys that do land or tenant defense law um, it's our nonprofit organizations like the EHOC that are doing that kind of thing um, so that's that's one of those ways is empowering the people who are in those to be able to to push back on their landlords and live in safe areas so um, a tenant bill of rights is, is something I want to I want to get forward all right. I'll, I'll remind the house if there's any last. We're getting to the end here. If there are any burning questions that haven't been asked, please write them down and send them forward. Uh, we're entering our final phase here. Uh, there have been a couple questions about the role of aldermen, and I, I don't know. Um, they're all over the place, but they're all kind of to the point of. You know, if the Board of Aldermen were a dance party for the last 50 years, most people have been huddled around the punch bowl gossiping when the DJ lays down the first track. But increasingly over the years, I would argue that the alderwoman across the park is often the first person out on the floor trying to dance, maybe some new steps people aren't familiar with. A couple other aldermen have joined in. If you join this dance party, are you going to be on the wall, around the punch bowl, or out on the floor? Another way to ask this question would be, what do you think your job will be when you're an alder? Well, those are two very different questions. Um, those are... Yeah, if we can split those out. Yeah. I think we're in agreement. We're Either split those way. Out there. Okay. So, um, I... I, I never really seen myself as a wallflower. Um, I don't I don't think that um, coming off the wall immediately when the music starts is my is my path. Um, I think kind of figuring out the beat a little bit first before we get in <laughs> is good. So you make sure that you're uh, you don't look uh, like you're completely out of out of the music. But um, I mean, I do think that we're we're in a situation where we need we need bold ideas, um, and we need people who are looking at best practices. And if there is something that's not working, um, just saying, "Well, this is the way it's always been done," is not really doing anybody any favors. Um, we've we've got a we've got significant challenges in the city of St. Louis, and to say to look back and say, "Okay, we can learn from what is here," but also if it's not working, if we've been doing it this way for the past twenty years or even the past five years, and we can tell that it's not working, um, I don't. I don't uh, think that there's any reason to be shy about offering some bold, uh, bold changes. Paul? 
All right, well, except for the uh, the fast songs, I'm a punch bowl guy, but when the fast song comes out, I'm going to come out and dance. Does that make sense? I mean, it's a labored analogy you will allow, right? Sure. So, I mean, it is the fact. It's the royale. You know what? You build the consensus to get your things done around that punch bowl. You need to get along with people. I mean, it, it's absolutely the case that one person walking in there to legislate with the purest heart and the best intentions and the best ideas can get nothing done without consensus. you got to spend some time around that punch bowl and then when my song comes on, I'm on the dance floor. But it's at, but how are you going to learn, you know? So, n- no wallflowers here, so. Can I ask a quick follow-up? If the president of the Board of Aldermen is a DJ, then uh, what requests are you going to be putting in in terms of tracks you want to be dancing to, a.k.a. committees you want to be serving on? Oh. So I was going to say country grammar again, again sure. but yeah. that's yeah. on the... You, you're asking about committees. Just very quickly. Committees, uh, you ways, might want and to means, ways and means, public safety, uh, HUDs. I mean, th- that's not uh, not that I would absolutely, you know, you can't go in, like I said in the thing, throwing haymakers. But th- these are three things that uh, sync well with my uh, with my skill set. These are ways that I can help the city immediately. Any? Uh, I'd say if I had to pick three, legislation, rules, and um, uh, the safety, public safety committee. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, much like many persistent women all over the country, I kind of wanted an answer to my question. So uh, what could you just describe maybe in two sentences what you think your job will be when you are an alderman? Yeah, so I think it's it's being um, present, accountable, um, and active, right? So um, being a part of the community, being here when people need you, um, being responsive to people's needs and accountable for what, you're, what you say you're going to get done and is something getting done. And then active, meaning taking a leadership role, taking um, taking a big picture look at why, if someone has a need that keeps repeating, why is that need keeping repeating? Why are they not getting the services that they need um, from the Citizen Service Bureau? Why aren't they getting responded to? Because if you're not getting responded to here, then someone else isn't there as well. So we've got a bigger systemic issue to challenge. So it's the, it's the individual need and then the systemic, how do we make changes on this big level? I'll slightly disagree with my opponent. I think that present, accountable, and active are traits that you would like to have. But the job that you have at the Board of Aldermen is to legislate and to provide constituent services. Those are the two things. Legislate, provide constituent services. And the answer is... Beg pardon? I actually honestly didn't... You, okay, I'm not, I'm not Steve Conway, so I don't know what to tell you. So, continue, Paul. Okay. So uh, legislate, provide constituent services. To legislate, you're going to be legislating two hours out of the week. Uh, The rule of thumb is five hours for every one hour you legislate, you're preparing to legislate. So that's 12 hours. Now, uh, at the end of that, you have 30 hours left of work to do. You absolutely have to uh, provide constituent services. You would miss it if they were gone. It's become fashionable in recent times uh, for uh, some alders, and I'm naming absolutely no names, to say, well, you didn't really hire me to trim those trees. You hired me to legislate. You hired them to legislate, but until we can find out a way to trim those trees, you are leaving your people in a lurch if you cannot cannot give those 30 hours. I plan on being a full-time alderman. I plan on having office hours. You can come find me, and you can give me a piece of your mind or you can give me a pat on the back. You can give me whatever you want. But what I want you to give most is a task. Give me a task that I can knock out. 
That is something that maybe we shouldn't have to ask our elders to do. But it's not going away before redistricting for sure. For the next four hours, are we saying, well, we'll just try this where we don't really have constituent services or, or somebody who's active that will come out and fix my dumpster and fix my sidewalk and make sure my lights are on. We cannot experiment with our public safety in that way. That's, that's simply not the case. So the role is legislation. The role is also constituent services and ignore either one or the other at, at the peril of your constituents. I'm, I'm going to focus on both. Okay, so um, we're, we're getting near to the end here. Um, and I'm going to allow you a 30-second response because I think in the, I didn't ask the question in a way that made both question and answers answer in the same way. So, Annie, 30 second response, then we have three more questions. Sure. I would say that it's not, nothing in my answer was about neglecting either one of those. Um, and I want to be very clear about that. That um, just because we have, because I want you to also use the Citizen Service Bureau, that is a service that exists across the city, does not mean that I am not answering your phone call. That, does, that doesn't mean that I'm not also checking to make sure your dumpster did get followed through on. That we got the water mains on 39th Street fixed, right? Those, those holes have been there forever, and we finally have water back out. I made some phone calls early this week. I talked to Herbert, the water division, and we've got people out there working on them right now. So those things can get done. Um, and so I just want to be very clear that I'm not talking about neglecting those things, and those are things that I'm doing right now because I know how to connect people to services, and that's an important role there, too. Um, we've talked about tax abatements and tax incentives, but another part of that, beyond the supply side of market rate housing, is the supply side of affordable housing. This is something that really hasn't been developed in the 8th Ward in the last uh, few years. It hasn't, you know, maybe been an issue at the forefront, but some would say that, you know, studies like the Public Policy Research Center's report shows like 400% decrease in Section 8 vouchers in the Shaw neighborhood alone between 2014, that affordable housing should be part of the mix. Do you have an affordable housing plan? Paul. Yes, I do. Actually, I've, it's been my pleasure to look, have learned a lot. I work for, uh, for the last two years. Most of my working day has been spent in the service of the For the Sake of All uh, project by the WashU uh, uh, Brown School of Social Work. Uh, and it has been studying uh, implementation of inclusionary zoning, decrease of uh, racial segregation and economic segregation and access to health, uh, specifically for city of St. Louis and St. Louis County. Uh, and so the AFFH guidelines, the Public Policy Research Center, uh, it's very, very similar, but they use a different metric. They use an index score rather right. than uh, a calculation that's based on 80% of median income. Who pays more than 30% of their income on housing? That's whether a renter or a homeowner. Now, I just put a lot of you to sleep, so I'll wake you back up. That's a complicated thing, but this is a metric with which HUD and uh, AFFH uh, determine what is a high-cost uh, high housing burden or a low housing burden. Shaw neighborhood, uh, and this is in flux, and our data goes back to 2015, mirrors the rest of the region in that way uh, fairly closely. We're probably in the top 10% if you include county, but why would we cheat and include county, right? Because they're going to throw things off. So, I mean, it is the case that housing costs, especially rental uh, housing cost, has gone up in the city of St. Louis, but it does not spiral, or in the Shaw neighborhood especially, but I don't want to, I want to branch that out to other places. It's gone up. I came in and had a $150 single-bedroom apartment for nine years. And let's just talk the absolute truth is that those days in our, are in our rearview mirror. We're not going to get the $150 one-bedroom Shaw apartment. That's not coming back. But we need to be able to keep our people uh, in their houses and maintain the diversity that we have. Uh, there's various – I've gone on too long. But there's legislative ways that we can do that. With Andy's permission, maybe after her reply, I can expand on that only if 
you're interested in if it makes a difference. But Tell anyway. me, Tammy. Just to, um, we talked a little bit about the Tower Grove Neighborhood CDCs um, buying up some properties that they're holding those at 80% of the median income. That is that is one way to do that. Um, they're doing that in Tower Grove South, um, and we are blessed to have the CDC that's um, – they're, they're doing a lot of really good work. We have the DeSales um, CDC over in Tower of East as well that is working to do do that kind of work on that side of the of the ward as well. Um, one of the one of the specific things that we can do in the eighth ward is not giving away um, tax abatements on. M- reducing multifamily homes to single-family homes, right? So that immediately drops your diversity, that drops your density, um, and, and it gr- increases prices on your homes. Um, and so being careful that we're intentional about how we're driving forward, right? We, um, When the Detonti project went in, it was a new build on a vacant lot. Um, then the CDC countered with trying to buy up these properties to hold some of them at, at that 80% income. And hopefully their plan is to is to keep them there, even as other things around them go up, but to keep those at that rental value that they're at right now. Um, I'm, I live in a rental um, that is not, it's not, as affordable housing, but it is a pretty affordable um, apartment in Shaw. And the owner of, of my properties um, takes really good care of them. I'm, I'm fortunate to have that. But finding those are, are gems. They're, you know, it's a it's a diamond in the rough to find an apartment like that um, in a neighborhood like Shaw. Um, I got really lucky when I, when I moved in that I found exactly what I was looking for, um, just because I was able to put a deposit down that day and I was able to pass a background check. Um, and so there are things that we can do when we're tenant screening to make sure that we're letting as many people into these as need, as need to get into these units. Um, and we're not... Um, you know, we're, we're incentivizing landlords to keep things at a reasonable rate. Just because you can raise the rent doesn't mean that you – is it necessarily the best thing, too. And part of that is is working towards a, a plan for, you know, how we go forward on these things. So um, I think that there are there are ways to address it. Um, the tax incentives, for sure. Um, programs with the CDCs to, to try to keep um, quality – um, lower income housing um, and making sure that people are accepting Section 8 vouchers when they're there. It is illegal to reject someone just because they're a Section 8 voucher holder. Um, so you need to you need to make sure that the, that's being enforced as well. And um, that's that keeps some of our diversity, that keeps some of our density and our affordable housing. Okay, this is our and we're we're gonna we're gonna do one final question and then closing comments. Okay, final question is flashback to the trauma of the second presidential debate. But but a real question. Why would you vote for your opposing candidate here? What what do you like about your opposing candidate? What would what do you support about them as a candidate and as a person? And I think Annie, you're up first. Yeah. Yeah. Um so I've, I've had the pleasure of working with Paul um, on the with the Eighth Ward Independent Democrats and um, you know, we didn't run together for that, um, but we've we've worked pretty well together um, since then. And and I think um, Paul's ability to take the numbers uh, and and give them to people to make that accessible, make the data accessible to people, um, is is a really useful skill. It's been really useful for the Democratic Party to figure out where people are registered to vote, um, who's voting for which candidates, and things like that. And that's um, that is really good data. Um, the yeah, I, I, you know, it's uh, 
I think that with all of the vitriol that's, that's happening uh, online, I, we don't have that for each other. Um, and so I just want to you know, make sure that that is clear with everyone here as well. Um, and I think both of us intend to continue to work together regardless of who wins, um, that we both have active roles to play um, regardless of who wins. Paul? I, I also have enjoyed uh, getting to know Andy much better over the last uh, 18 months, probably two years or so. I know her to be a brilliant uh, person. I know her to be a very hard worker, very passionate person. Take the bitter with the sweet. The thing that I'm worried about is the ability to deliver constituent services to the ward as a part-time alderman. I will be your full-time alderman. It is the case that 12 hours of legislating makes a pretty high-paying part-time job. And this is not to say that she would ignore it, but this has my dawn-to-dusk attention. This is... At the very least, after you've legislated, you have 20, on a short week, you have 20 hours worth of work to do to make sure that this ward looks good. Sometimes 30, sometimes 40. So uh, all that being said, I, I find nothing to dislike about Annie personally. I find her to be a brilliant person. I find her to be a hard worker and have a good heart, and I mean that very sincerely. All right, we're going to wrap it up with one-minute closing statements. Anything you don't think we covered, anything you want to say, anything you think should stick in the mind of someone in the house about you on the way out the door? And we'll start with sure. Paul. One minute. One thing I would like all of you to remember about me, uh, even long after I'm dead, I hope I live a long and productive life, is that I love this city and I love all 317,000 people in it. It is the case that I have uh, been in 400 church basements all over the uh, doing Q&A for, for Prodigo, and every single interaction I have with any St. Louis and that I haven't met uh, invigorates me and makes me love this city even more. Uh, the other thing that you should know is that I think many people find somebody who knows me. If you don't, uh, uh, like Andy said, social media can distort things quite a bit. I'm not sure that uh, Facebook is really helping this uh, debate or uh, this whole election. Uh, but find somebody who knows me. It can even be somebody who doesn't support me. Find somebody who knows me. They will tell you that I'm a sincere person, that I'm an honest person, a humble person, a respectful person, and a person who puts work behind anything that he says and always keeps his word. You will find that even among people who are not supporting me. So if you are on the fence, uh, I would like to ask you very sincerely for your vote. I want to ask each and every man and woman uh, in the 8th Ward for their vote, and I want to show you over the next however many years uh, why you cast a good vote and why I hope to earn it. So thank you. All right. Almost a perfect minute. Annie. So my, my career has been about service, has been about where can I use my skills to do the most good for the most people. Um, and that was, that was the ministry that was um, heading to law school. I have clients um, who depend on me. They are life and death situations for some of these folks. And I also work for a law firm that supports my uh, desire to move into this service, right? That um, they're both Shaw residents and... Uh, we, I'm going to have the time to serve the, the residents of Shaw and the needs. The needs are sorry. The needs of the Eighth Ward. Um, the we. Your needs are outside of nine to five hours. They're outside of business hours. Um, the needs of my clients currently are outside of those, and I work within those bounds very easily. I'm currently working two jobs. One of those will go away if this happens. So it will be one job plus then alderman. Um, I have that time. I have that passion. I'm here because I deeply love St. Louis, and I know you do too. And I think facilitating facilitating connections between people and services is important so that um, 
I want you to have my phone number. I want you to be able to call me, but One I don't minute. think you should have to. Um, but I also want to connect you to other people who are doing great things as well. Um, we are all siloed in the things that we work on here in St. Louis. We're all passionate about the things that we do. If we were talking to each other, if I can help facilitate those relationships so we're working together, we can do a whole lot more. So I would appreciate your vote on February 13th as well. Thank you, candidates. All right. Um, so thank you all for your stupendous participation. I want to let you know that we got a lot of questions, and if you feel like your question was neglected, charge it to the boundaries of time and space and not to our hearts, as the old saying goes. Right. Catch um, these candidates afterwards. Catch these They'll candidates be around. Afterwards. I'm sure they will spend all the time they want and in a polite and to get your vote. Nonviolent way. <laughs> um, and then, if you if you have any thoughts or feelings about our Royal Podcast, be sure to to subscribe. Right. Um, and right. follow us for more invigorating debates. Right. Hopefully one day a candidate, we can see if all candidates in the future agree with country grammar as the anthem, and we could get this, we could get this going. <laughs> all right. You know, also, one, one other thing, if you're watching this on the live stream and need to replay some of the moments, it will be out as a podcast on nextstl.com before the election on Tuesday. So Happy catch voting. the podcast, re-listen, make your choice. I would never encourage anyone to decide this early. You still have until Tuesday to make your choice. Vote early, vote often, as the old saying goes. Good night, everyone. Thank you. from Washington University. It's the presidential debate. Oh, my God. Oh, my goodness. Partisanship over... Sorry, what did you say? Never mind.